Specialty Story, session number 38. Whether you're a pre-med or a medical student or even a resident, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information you need to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to The Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week. This week, I have a great guest for you, somebody who is super passionate about her career, about her specialty. This week, we're talking to Dr. Julie Crystal, an academic pediatric oncologist who's been out of training now for two years. We start the discussion by talking about how she got interested in pediatric oncology. So I'm one of those crazy people who knew what I wanted to do for like as long as I can remember. Um, not as long, but it, but actually in high school, I wanted to be a child life person, like the people who like do arts and crafts with kids who are in the hospital. And so I was volunteering um, at Stanford Children's Hospital, which is where I grew up in California. And I was working with a lot of oncology patients because they're in the hospital for a long time and they're cool kids and doing lots of activities. But I realized the more that I got to work with the doctors and, and see the fellows that the doctors actually seemed to be um, doing a way cooler job than the child life people. So that was when I decided that's what I wanted to do in high school. Um, and I stuck with that and, and felt strongly about it all throughout my training and through college and through med school and through residency. Um, I There were points at which I gave other things a try because um, peds oncology is a is a tough path in many senses. And so I, at some points, tried to convince myself to like other things that would be better hours, better pay, all kinds of better things. But nothing else, um, you know, nothing else was the right fit for me. This was really the one thing I really wanted to do. What was it about Pedzonk that was drawing you? So I think it's a couple of things. One is that you get to have that um, sort of primary care relationship over long periods of time. So for our kids, we we kind of remove them from their pediatrician. They don't go to their pediatrician while they're with us and while they're getting chemo or treatment. And the relationship goes over many, many, many years and they stay with us. So you have that longitudinal sense that you get from primary care, but you have much more interesting, complex medical problems. So it's kind of the best of both worlds of, of something really interesting subspecialty-wise and also um, that that relationship that is so important. And for me, what I like about it is that, you know, um, whenever I tell people what I do, their first reaction is almost always negative. They go, oh, how awful, how sad. And I always have to tell people that, no, it's actually not sad. You know, the majority of children are cured from their cancer and they go on and have wonderful adult lives. But you know, it's my privilege to be with a family during the worst, most horrible thing that's happening to them and to see them through to the other side. And so I think that part of it just really appeals to me that you get to go through something that's like so challenging, but that you most of the time you have a happy ending. And yes, when it's bad, it's really bad and really sad. But most of the time, you know, you know that you're going to be having, getting this family over something that's really hard and then get to see their child go on and, and grow up and do wonderful things. So, so there's, I think all those things about it, um, it's just a really, it's a wonderful role as a physician to get to do that. What traits do you think lead to being a good pedzonk doc? 
So I think there's a few things. I think one, you have to be like a generally sunny and optimistic person, which I for sure am, because like I said, there there are sad moments and there's depressing moments. And if you tend towards a person who, you know, is like a little more down and like plenty of people, I know wonderful people who are like this, they're just a little less optimistic about the world, then you should not do this because every day will seem horrible and sad and terrible to you. So I think definitely you have to have a certain element of, um, of optimism and order to do this. I think you also have to be, um, there, the lifestyle of peds oncology is tough. It's not, you know, it's academic long hours. There is no money in it. Um, if you're, you know, doing grants and you're fighting tooth and nail against everyone else to get any sort of funding or money, um, things are challenging. So I think you have to be willing to kind of, uh, really devote yourself and you have to be accepting that this is sort of your life and it's not a glamorous, fancy sports car kind of gig. It's not that job at all. It's the down in the dirt, you know, long days, long nights. And, and that's just sort of what it is. So you have to sort of be go into it, knowing that and knowing that you're not going to be, you know, whizzing down the street in your sports car, you know, going to play golf at four in the afternoon. It's not going to happen. Okay. Good to know. Did, you talked about the, the pediatric patients surviving most of their cancers. What types of patients, what types of cancers are you seeing? So I mostly take care of kids uh, with brain tumors and in peds oncology, things are pretty specialized these days, like in everything else. So uh, there's hematology and there's oncology. So I'm specialized to oncology. And then within oncology, there are some doctors who do leukemia and some doctors who do bone tumors and some doctors who do brain tumors. I'm mostly taking care of kids with brain tumors, but I do, like everyone else, we have to do a certain number of weeks of the year of inpatient service. And when you're on inpatient service, you take care of everybody who's admitted and all the new diagnoses that come in. So I keep you know, up to date with everything by doing that kind of work um, and get to see a little of everything. The vast majority of childhood cancer is leukemia. And so those are the things, you know, in the average week of service, one or two new diagnoses of leukemia will come in, maybe one brain tumor, but but the vast majority of new diagnoses every week are leukemias. Um, so that we definitely see a lot of. And then the other things that are common in the pediatric age group are the bone tumors like osteosarcoma and Ewing sarcoma. Brain tumors are actually the most common solid malignancy. So there's a lot of those. Um, and the majority of those have a good outcome despite their reputation. Um, the, the most of those are, are pretty good. So that's mostly what I do in my, in my own work. When you're in your fellowship training and you're uh, on this path, when you are subspecializing even, even further into brain tumors, is that just job outlook or is that something you're just drawn to based on the pathology that you like? It's, it's a, that's a great question. And for me, it was, it was jobs. So there's not a lot of jobs in academic peds oncology. There's more fellows graduating every year than they have open positions for. And part of the reason for that is complicated and has to do with funding because peds oncology is really only at, at academic institutions that have, you know, um, a lot of NIH funding and things like that. And so it's just very hard to find academic positions. And so, um, brain tumors is something that is little, like not people shy away from it. And I didn't shy away from it. I was, I wasn't like, this is when I started off doing fellowship training, like, oh, this is the thing I most want to do. Um, but I found it to be interesting. And, and I found that it was a place where there's a, a real need and people shy away from it. So by, by doing something that other people were kind of hesitant towards, I was able to get a job that I really love. Um, the other piece of work that I do that's non, non -cl directly clinical is I work on early phase clinical trials. Um, and that I, I really, really, truly love and feel passionately about, you know, there's, um, 
a lot of new cancer therapies in adults, and it's much harder to get those into kids. So I work on um, getting early phase clinical trials up and running in my hospital, and that's um, a wonderful, really, really cool thing that I never envisioned myself doing. But when I was looking for jobs, this opportunity sort of fell in my lap, and I was so excited. And it's been, you know, the coolest job I never imagined that or knew that I wanted. But I think um, I think a lot of people have that with their career that they can't. You know, you don't really foresee all the steps that are coming ahead of you, but if you keep your mind open to what something might look at, then really cool things will come your way. Why do people shy away from brain tumors? Um, I think because a they're um, like their own little thing, like leukemia and lymphoma is something like everybody kind of knows about, and and we all know what to do with. And brain tumors are much more of a niche. Like if you don't, if one walks in the door and you don't know what to do, it can feel really scary because it's, it's a whole different world. And I think the other reason is because, you know, we've made huge, huge progresses, um, in lots of pediatric tumors, like, and especially in leukemia where, you know, for standard risk leukemia, the, the cure rate is over 90, 90%, in some cases, 95%. And that's phenomenal, but we haven't had that huge leap for all types of brain tumors. So there are certain types of brain tumors where the cure rate is unfortunately still very low. And I think people really um, shy away from that because it's um, it's intimidating and people, um, it's, it's hard to go through that um, professionally just to have that be your job. But the way that I look at that is, you know, we still have room to make that progress. And that's really exciting that we could um, keep working and keep trying and keep doing studies until we find the next thing that's going to make the biggest difference for these diagnoses. So to me, that's, um, you know, it's something you I am aware of that it, it can be challenging and hard sometimes and working with the families can get overwhelming, but um, that there's room for so many great things to happen still. Do you have to take a lot of call? Um, I don't, I, I mean, what I consider, I don't because, you know, fellowship is, is three years and the first year of the fellowship, um, is purely clinical and like you practically die. <laughs> and after that, after, after being a fellow, like being an attending, it seems, you know, things are, things are definitely so much easier. So the call that we take is when we're on service, um, we're on service for the week, Monday through Friday, and we're on during the day, rounding on the inpatients, but then we're also available at night. But the fellows take the first call. So fellows take the calls from the ER, fellows take the calls from the service, from families at home who parents are calling in with questions. The fellows take the calls from outside hospitals. So the fellows only contact the attendings, you know, in cases where they're um, looking for guidance or, or not sure what's going on. Some nights that's 10 phone calls and some nights it's zero phone calls. So, um, and so I do that, do a week of that and I do eight weeks per year. And that's not a fully clinical position because I have research time. Um, and so that's not bad for eight weeks a year. To me, that's manageable. It leaves me a lot of time to do the other things and research and clinical trials that I want to do. So it's not... Um, you know, it's not the kind of thing where you're, you're on a lot of call and you don't do, you know, almost nowhere do attendings don't do in-house call of any type. So it's something that you're available at nighttime, you know, from the phone. And so you can still kind of live your life and I can leave and go pick up my kids and the fellows can just call me and, and ask me questions. So to me, that's, it's really doable. So your mom with two kids, do you feel yes. like your specialty allows for enough time outside of the hospital? I think you have to really try hard for that. I think in, in my work, um, it's tough because, um, 
you know, it's just, it's academic days. Things start early in the morning, things go late at night. So you have to be really conscientious of that. And I plan my schedule really carefully to make sure that I get to see my kids. My kids are really little. And so the problem with that is they go to bed really early. So what I do a lot of days is I just, you know, I either set an alarm or make a stopping point and I will say, I'm going to leave the office by, you know, five o'clock, no matter what's going, what I'm doing with my work. And I will stop right there and I'll go home and be with my kids a couple hours and they go to bed and then I can work. And, and that's what I do a lot of nights. Um, If I have notes left to write, if I was working on a study or a grant or something I didn't finish, then I can work at night after they go to bed. Um, But that's really important to me to make sure that I have that time with them. When I'm on service, you know, those eight weeks a year, that's really challenging. And there's some nights that I I don't get to see them because I can't always just pick up and leave. Um, And so that's that's the hard times. But I think you have to really work at it. I think um, it's something that you have to be conscientious about because it's not like just scheduling your office hours where you're going to be done from nine to five, you know, you're sort of in charge of a lot of your work. And so I'm just aware of that. And I make sure to try to plan out my day so that I know that I can um, stop. And you have to be willing to to work at home, I think, if that's, you know, that's how your life is. And like, you just have to be set up so that you can get a few hours of work in after the kids are to bed. And um, if that's, if that's what's important to you. So I think, I think the short answer is that, yes, you can do that. You just, you have to be flexible and you have to plan around that and make it the priority. What's the residency and fellowship training path to get to where you are now? Yeah, so it's you do a general peds residency, um, which is three years, and most people during their general peds residency might only have a month of you know peds oncology exposure. So I really encourage people to get more exposure because I think people. Um, peds residents, I was terrified of oncology kids when I was a resident because they're really sick and they're really complicated. And so when you're a resident, it's like so scary. But I really encourage people to get as much exposure as they can to see what it's actually like. Because just seeing those sick kids on the inpatient side, that doesn't give you a glimpse of what it's actually like to do this job. Because like I said, that's only my job eight weeks out of the year. That leaves, you know, all the rest of the year where I'm doing other things um, and not being with those super sick kids who are admitted in the hospital. So I really encourage residents to try Try to get more exposure, get exposure to the outpatient side, get exposure to the research side, see what attendings actually do. Um, so anyway, once you do PEDS um, residency, it's a, a three-year um, fellowship, and the first year is a purely clinical year, um, and the second two years are research years, whether that's laboratory research or I did clinical research as well as um, got an MPH during those years. So you can kind of, most a lot of places will give you flexibility, but um, after those three years, then you're finished, and then there are um, if you feel like, wow, you just want to torture yourself some more, there's sub fellowships. So you can do an additional year of training, um, actually in things like brain tumors. I didn't do one, but there are, um, brain tumor fellowships for an extra year. There are bone marrow transplant fellowships for an extra year. So if you wanted to super subspecialize and do additional training, cause you wanted to get more exposure to something, you can go on and do an extra year in that. Is the peds world getting super subspecialized with the fellowship with separate heme and onc fellowships, or is it still all combined? Well, so the fellowship is all combined. So the three-year fellowship is, it's like one thing you match into, it's peds, hematology, oncology, and you do train in both. Um, But most people during their fellowship are gravitating towards one or the other. They're gravitating towards heme or towards onc. And um, most very large academic centers are separated. So like in my division, people are either a hematologist, an oncologist, or a bone marrow trainer. 
transplanter. There are some smaller programs where it's combined. So they only have one service and the attendings take care of everybody, heme patients, on patients, everything. So that definitely exists. And I think some people like that to kind of get a little flavor of everything. Um, but but most large academic centers are, are very specialized into, you know, specific little niches where that's the kind of practice that you do. But everybody at this point still has to do everything in the fellowship, which is different in the adult side. You can do a, a hematology fellowship or an oncology fellowship. You don't do both. Um, but in PEDS, you, it's a combined fellowship and, and you have to train and, and the boards cover everything. You have to, to train for both things. How competitive is it to match for the fellowship? It's it's not competitive. <laughs> like I like I said before, this is something I think a lot of residents shy away from. So it's not something that um, if you are, I think most people who want a spot can find a spot. I, I don't think it's something that people should think is out of their reach if they, you know, don't have good board scores or foreign medical grads for sure. You know, it's something that there's there's a lot of fellowship spots in the country. Um and and I, I think there's plenty to, to go around because people do shy away from it so much. Do you see any negative bias towards DOs? Uh, no, there's lots of DOs. I don't think. In fact, I don't even. I didn't even know some of the people who were DOs. I think there's people are are totally accepting of that and treat it, you know, the same as an MD. You talked a little bit about some of the opportunities to further subspecialize. Uh, you mentioned the brain tumors transplant. Um, what else, what other options are there? So some people do like coagulation, like hemophilia and bleeding disorders. Um, there are other ones in so- something that's relatively new is called survivorship. And this is actually super cool. But, you know, 30 years ago, there were no long-term survivors of childhood cancer because they had all died. Um, and now that we cure most children, you know, these kids grow up and they're 30 years old and they're 40 years old and they do have certain health problems or at risk for certain health problems as a result of the treatment that they got. So survivorship is now a whole new discipline that follows these patients through their adulthood and they monitor what kind of testing should they get, what kind of, you know, things should they do in terms of their lifestyle, um, fertility issues, which is something that, you know, is a big deal for survivors. So you can subspecialize and you can do further training in survivorship, which is a, a very cool new thing. There's a couple for solid tumors. Blood banking is actually a big one. So the, at every hospital, there's a blood bank and the directors of the blood banks are all hematologists whether they're adult or pediatric. So you can definitely work in blood banking and blood banking is a more uh, lifestyle friendly choice. So I, people definitely go for that. Um, those are the biggest ones. What do you wish, if, if you were go, going to go in and talk to a group of pediatricians, what do you wish they knew about peds oncology that would help their patients have better outcomes? Uh, you know, I think the most important thing is general pediatricians worry about missing um, something, like they worry that they are going to miss a leukemia or something like that. And I think, I don't, I don't, um, I think it, it must be so hard to be a general pediatrician, right? Because kids come in and they're complaining of headache, right? And like every kid complains of headache. And how do you know who should you be sending for a scan and who shouldn't you? So one of the things that I always do when you know, kids get diagnosed with brain tumors as a, and I speak to the pediatricians is they always blame themselves and they always say, I should have sent them for a scan sooner. And I, you know, I thought it was this, I thought it was that. And, and the answer is always that 
that that's, it's okay because most kids who have a headache do not have a brain tumor. The brain tumor is the zebra here, you know? And so I think the, the thing that pediatricians need to know is that to, to trust themselves and follow their workup and not to, um, not to second guess what they're doing, follow their normal steps and do the things that they're doing. You know, every kid, um, you know, doesn't, doesn't need an MRI who has a headache. And, and similarly, you know, when they're concerned, when they see petechiae or they see a kid who they feel the spleen, you know, those are the times that they need to get that CBC and they need to make the quick call to us. So I think, you know, we're available and pediatricians call our practice a lot. And, and I really appreciate when they do that just to get general guidance. But I think, you know, pediatricians, um, they have a really hard job because they need to not miss these huge important things, but also not overreact to everything. And so I think, um, um, what they should know is just that, that they're doing a great job and not to second guess themselves and, and um, regret that they didn't do something sooner or later or whatever, because, because they're probably doing it just right. Outside of pediatrics, what other specialties or specialists do you work the closest with? So we work a lot with surgeons, obviously, for any solid tumors, um, and also just for placing central lines and stuff. I would say aside from that, we work with every specialty, which is a cool thing about it, because you have to know, you know, in what I do, a little bit of everything. We work a lot with ID because, you know, these are immunocompromised kids, and they get sick as stink, and they get weird sepsis, septic with weird bacteria and weird line infections. We work a lot with um, nephrology. They're always, they get renal damage from chemo, same thing with pulmonology, um, and GI, you know, GVHD and transplant, um, and all kinds of other things. So we really get to work with all other specialties because what we do affects every part of the body. You know, cancer affects every part of the body, chemo affects every part of the body. Um, and so we get to work with, with pretty much everybody. There's no, no service that we don't, um, get to consult and get to speak with about our kids. And I think because they're a unique population, our relationship with those subspecialists is, is really good because we have to work so closely with them. And so um, we have the opportunity to learn a lot from them and they get to learn a lot from us about our patients. And so uh, we have a great relationship with our, with our subspecialists. Are there any special opportunities outside of clinical medicine for Pizonk? For sure. So, um, you know, industry is a big, is a big thing. There's, um, a lot of people, not a lot, but people do go into industry in terms of pharmaceutical companies. So pharmaceutical companies are always looking for pediatricians, uh, to do drug development, clinical trials, that kind of thing. Um, and that is for sure a very different lifestyle, um, that a lot of people choose. And, and I, I have friends and know a lot of people who've gone that route. And I think, um, if that's something that, that you're interested in, it's a, it's a great, career choice, but, um, that's something that, that a lot of people, and there's a need for that, right? We need drugs to be developed. We need them to be studied in kids. Um, and so that's a great thing to do. The other thing is, um, other sort of, uh, clinical trial things like the FDA. Uh, there's a whole group of peds oncology people who work at the FDA in terms of, uh, looking at new drugs and things like that. Um, so there's definitely opportunities there. Um, and then there's always lab research. You know, we, Lab research is still a part of what we do. It's how we got to where we are uh, with all of all of pediatric oncology treatment, and it's how we're going to get where we're going in the future. So people who are truly um, not clinically oriented and just want to go into a lab and, you know, find out something cool, there's that opportunity as well. You do a lot of research for what you do, and you don't have a PhD. Do you feel like not having a PhD has hindered your ability to do the amount of research that you want to do? 
No, because, well, I don't do bench research. I don't do research in the lab. I think if you want to do research in the lab, um, a PhD does give you an edge up for sure. Um, that being said, I know people who've had successful lab careers and run labs who don't have a PhD, but I do think that if you want to be competitive and if you're getting grants, that having a PhD for lab work really does make a big difference for me. Um, since most of the, the work that I do is, um, more early phase clinical trials and, and drug development and stuff like that. I don't feel like it's, it's made a big difference. I got an MPH when I was in fellowship and I do feel like that, um, gives me a little bit of an advantage a, because I, I, knew a little bit more background about clinical trials, but also because people just take you a little bit more seriously. Like the more letters you have <laughs> that can, you can say I'm qualified for X, Y, Z, even if it's bogus, like it, it does get your foot in the door and it gets people to listen to you. So I think that, you know, those kinds of things can always help you. But I think for sure, if you're going to be doing, having a lab career, that the PhD is a big boost. It's a very big boost. What do you know now that you wish you knew going into Pizonk? Um, it's so worth it. <laughs> it's just so worth it. You know, now that I actually have a job that I love and I get to do this every day, I'm so grateful that this is my job. And I think during the many years of training and during fellowship when it seemed like it was never going to end and it was hard to think like, what is it, you know, when you're a fellow, it's really hard to see what is your life actually going to be like when this is over. Um, and I think if I could just go back and tell myself, I mean, I survived, but like, you know, this is so worth it. Like you're going to get to the end and you're going to have this awesome, awesome job and it's going to be the best thing ever. And so, you know, you can keep, you know, suffering for a little bit longer and then you're going to make it to the other side. I think, um, um, it's just, it, the, there's so many, so many jobs like mine where there's so many long years of training, you can lose sight of what is actually at the end of it. Um, and it turns out what the end, what's actually at the end of it is really awesome. What do you like the most about being Pizonk? Um, I like the families. I like the patients. You know, I get to to go to work every day and hang out with really awesome kids who are, you know, fighting these really tough battles. And and like they they don't care. They're just awesome about it. They're running in the hallways and they're playing and they're going to school. Um, and they fight so hard and they um they do incredible things. They just do incredible, incredible things. So the families um and the kids are are really what make my job so special because I just get to be with them and support them and help them in a way that you just don't get to in a lot of other specialties, you know, through something that's such a big deal. And you know, having a child with cancer changes the life of the child and every person in the family. Um and and I get to be a part of that. And it's my privilege to be a part of that and be a part of their family during a time when when something like that is going on. So that's what brings me to work every day for sure. What do you like the least? Um, kids dying. <laughs> that's, that's really hard. You know, um, we, we know that, that it's going to happen and, and we can't, uh, we're not going to cure every child as much as we want to. And, um, sometimes it's hard because, um, I take it personally. It's in the sense that it's hard to accept that failure. Um, and one of my favorite mentors told me, um, it, one of the things I've kept with me all the time is in the beginning of fellowship is we're in charge of the process, but we're not in charge of the outcome. And I say that to families every time I do a diagnosis talk, because we can choose the steps that we're going 
going to follow and we can choose the path that we're going to take. But ultimately, I, I can't choose the outcome because if I could, I would just make every child okay. Um, but I can't choose the outcome and I'm not in charge of that part of it. And it's hard to let go of that personal responsibility that, um, you know, that this these are things that are happening beyond my control. So it's hard to let go of that. Um, and it's just hard. Um, it's obviously hard for to, to see a family in that much pain and to be a part of that. And that's really difficult. Um, but we have a lot of support systems because obviously we know that this is a part of our work and that we're going to be dealing with death. And so um, it's something that we we're, have to be conscientious about and have to know sort of we have to deal with this and we have to process it and we have to be aware of it. Um, but it is it is the worst part of my job. There's a particular kind of brain tumor called a DIPG, which is inoperable and all children will die from it within two years. And I would say the very, very worst thing that I do is when a new patient comes in with that diagnosis and I have to tell the family that. And I I always tell them this is this is the worst part of my job because it truly is having to give that kind of news to a family um, is just is absolutely devastating and it's it's just it's unimaginable for for and as a parent it's unimaginable to me um, and so it's so it's just it, that is truly the worst moment of my job is when I have to give any family that news that I'm certain that their child is going to die and that there's nothing I can do about it so that's one of the reasons that I I like the research part of my job and to do what I do because I would love to get to the point where I didn't have to say that anymore. Do you see any major changes coming to Pedzonk, whether that's technologies or pharmaceuticals? Yeah, well, there's a lot of changes, I think, coming in the future in terms of training and stuff. There's a lot of... Um, Pete's oncology is getting hospitalists in a lot of places and certain um, programs now are starting to have hospitalists either for nighttime care, but also daytime care. And there's just, there's going to be some changes, I think, in the workforce. I think part of that is because the hours tend to be intense and a lot of people want a better work-life balance at this point. And so people are trying to figure out how can we make this job have a better work-life balance. So there, I think there's going to be more and more shifts in the future in terms of hospitalists and nurse practitioners doing different things. So I think that's going to be changing things a lot. I think there's not a lot of technology that's changing anything, you know, too immediately for us, but there's definitely new drugs and treatments being developed that are just out of this world. I mean, the things that are happening now um, are so cool and they really have the potential to shift the treatment paradigms and, and really change uh, how children with cancer are treated. And, and, you know, we used to say that people talk about curing cancer and, and that's not one thing because there's so many different types of cancer, but I truly believe that we're, we're moving closer and closer to being able to cure more and more children in a lot of ways and in, in really phenomenal ways. So, so there's definitely changes all the time and there's so much new information. You know, like any other field, there's millions of journal articles coming out all the time. You cannot keep up with the pace of information development. It's impossible. And that's one of the reasons things end up getting so subspecialized is so people can try to stay on top of new information and treatment. But, um, there's there's definitely lots of cool things happening in that sense. But I think the workforce is going to change over the next 10 years. I think uh, people are going to try to make this a little bit of a, a little bit of a better work-life balance. If you had to do it all over again, would you choose the same specialty? Without a doubt. Without a doubt. No question in my mind. For the pre-med or medical student out there, even the PEDS resident listening to this, trying to figure out if PEDS onc is right for them, after what you said earlier about how 
the job prospects are getting harder and harder. How do you encourage them to continue to look into this field and, and check it out for them? Yeah, I think I, I, and I have this talk with the fellows all the time that the part of it is about being flexible. So being open to either moving somewhere that maybe you didn't want to move because Pete's oncology, like a lot of other specialists is super concentrated on both coasts. And there are States in the middle of the country that literally don't have a Pete's oncologist where they have to send every patient to out of the state and think of what a horrible experience that is for the family. Their child gets diagnosed with cancer and they have to move for their child to get treatment. So I I tell the fellows this and would tell the medical students and residents this, there are jobs, you have to be flexible. You have to either be willing to consider moving somewhere different or doing something that you originally weren't thinking of. I was never thinking of doing brain tumors, but by being open to that, you know, I was able to find a great job. So I think that what the way that I would encourage them is to say that, you know, there are jobs and there is a need out there. Um, but like maybe you can't be committed to, you know, working in New York or LA or something like that. You know, you might have to be a little bit more flexible about where you want to go, what you want to do, but you can find the right spot for you. For the medical student out there that's listening to this, what are the first steps that somebody should take if this is something they think they're interested in? I think mentorship is so important. I'm sure everyone says that on this talk, but but um, finding a mentor and someone that you can get advice from is really important. Find find a pediatric oncologist. You can call me. Um, find somebody that you can talk to that can kind of give you some guidance about the things that you should be doing. But the most important thing is just to get exposure. So as a medical student, you know, do electives or do sub eyes or do whatever you can to go see different types of peds oncology and you know and work outpatient, inpatient research, all of those things, um, and meet different people. But find a good mentor. Find somebody in the field who can really give you that guidance. Uh, you know, I've had many different mentors in the early phases of my career, and I still get a lot of mentorship. You know, as a, as a young attending, it's still so important to me that I meet with mentors and talk to them about what's going on in my career and my life and everything. Um, and I think that's really important to get established early on. So so find somebody that you can talk to um, and, and let them help you sort the path out. All right. So there you have it. Pediatric Oncology with Dr. Julie Crystal. Now, she mentioned at the end there, to reach out to her if you have any questions, you can do that through me. Just shoot me an email, ryan at medicalschoolhq.net, and I will connect you. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If there's a specialty that you are looking for that I haven't covered yet, please find a physician for me to interview and introduce me to him or her, and I will get them on the show. I hope this episode was valuable for you. I hope you join us next week here at MedEd Media and Specialty Stories.